Hey, everybody. We're talking to Vince Evans today. What an amazing guy. He's a former NFL player, has some incredible stories. You don't want to miss this conversation. Welcome to The Last 10%. Your host, Dallas Burnett, dives into incredible conversations that will inspire you to finish well and finish strong. Listen as guests share their journeys and valuable advice on living in the last 10%. If you are a leader, a coach, a business owner, or someone looking to level up, you are in the right place. Remember, you can give 90% effort and make it a long way, but it's finding out how to unlock the last 10% that makes all the difference in your life, your relationships, and your work. Now, here's Dallas. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the last 10%. I am Dallas Burnett in Thrive Studios, sitting in my 1905 Koch Brothers Barber chair. But more importantly, have a fantastic guest today. Former USC football standout, played with the NFL in, for the Bears, the Raiders, real estate developer, Lives in California with four beautiful children. Welcome to the show, Vince. Man, I'm glad to be here, Dallas. <laughs> Thank you for having me. How are you? I am good. I'm good. Ed Norwood just was absolutely just emphatic we needed to get you on the show. So when Ed Norwood says you need to have Vince on the show, mm. then we get Vince on the show. So it's a pleasure to talk to you today. Pleasure to be here with you. Ed had talked about his experiences on the show and thought it was a good idea that maybe I might be a part of it. And I'm looking forward to being with you today, Dallas. Yeah, we're excited. I'm excited for you to be able to share some of your wisdom with all of our listeners and everybody. We have a lot of coaches, leaders, business leaders and coaches that's listening to our program all actually all over the world. It's amazing how many people are tuning in to the last 10%. So what's it like growing up in the Evans home and going from start to NFL career. Give us a taste of your story and upbringing. Wow. It was, I'm 67 years old today. And as I look back on my life and I think about my upbringing with my parents, my, my dad was an industrial arts teacher as well as a principal. My mother was a, a teacher as well, home economics for 35 years. Actually, both of them were in education about that length of time. And we were a normal family, just like everybody else. You know, we had responsibilities around the house. We went to church on Sundays. We were involved in sports, just hanging out with the kids in the community. And as I think back, my parents were, they were probably my biggest role models, Dallas. Mm -hmm. And I say that because... In the 35 years that, you know, that they worked in the educational field, man, I can count on one hand the number of days that they missed work. Okay. Wow. Wow. <laughs> that they missed work. And that's, <laughs> and what's more amazing is that not only going to school, we had one car and sometimes my mother would have to catch the bus to go to work and to come home because my daddy had to use the car to go to the post office, as well as teaching. And they were the people that I looked up to, that we had structure, we had discipline, we had, we, they gave us vision, they gave us the ability to hope, to dream, to think about mm. the possibilities of things that, that you could do if you were willing to work for it. 
And, and so it was a good upbringing. And the way that I got to sort of start my journey out into the collegiate world was I was a high school kid that participated in sports and played all different sports, baseball, basketball, football, but I really loved football. And it was, I became a senior in high school and got some acclaim there in the city of Greensboro, being the all-city player and that sort of thing. But I remember one day, I was sitting in front of the television set, and this was about 1967. And we had just not long gotten a colored TV set. And I'm sitting in front of the TV set with my dad, and I think my brothers were also there. And there was a football game being played on the West Coast. They were playing in the L.A. Coliseum. USC was playing UCLA for a berth to go to the Rose Bowl. Whoever won that wow. game would go to the Rose Bowl. It was a capacity crowd in the Coliseum, maybe 90,000 people. Good gracious. And with minutes to go in the game, the quarterback for USC handed the ball to this. I guess he was a pretty average running back at the time. His name was O.J. Simpson. He makes this 64-yard touchdown run, Dallas, to win the game wow. for USC. And that's what I was saying. I was saying, wow, did you see that run? And the crowd is erupting. Well, what captivated me was this beautiful Arabian white horse that was galloping around the Coliseum floor, which was SC's mascot with the Trojan on the back of the horse. And so I told my dad, Dallas, who was sitting next to me, I said, Dad, that's the school I'm going to someday. Oh, wow. And he looked at me just like you're looking at me and said, boy, you have <laughs> lost your mind. <laughs> you have lost your mind. And why did he say that? He said that, Dallas, because I'd never been out of the state of North Carolina before. Oh, wow. I'd never been on an airplane before. In fact, I'd never been on a bus, like wow. a trailway bus or something like that that would take you. <laughs> he was probably saying, hi, in the world, you think you're going to get to USC? <laughs> and quite frankly, I didn't know how it's going to get there. Right, exactly. <laughs> oh, man. But as, as God's providence would have it, there was some, there was my brother, Tyrone, and this other friend of mine, Perry Nichols. They had already gone to California. And they had graduated from high school. They were a couple of years older than me. And so they had gone to California and... They didn't know about this thing that had happened to me and in terms of this dream that I was thinking about. And so when it came time for me to leave high school, and I had other recruits and scholarships that were offered to me, and I turned them down because I wanted to go to the West Coast. And my dad, he really could not understand how I could turn down something that was concrete right there in front of me for something that was, in his mind, and maybe in mine, a pipe dream, right? Right, yeah. But to make a long story short, so I, my mother gave me the last $50. I had a one-way ticket, and I had one suitcase. Oh and I left Greensboro, North Carolina, and set my sights to Los Angeles, California. And I went to California, enrolled in a junior college, Los Angeles City College, and during that time, junior college football was, was pretty big because it was a feeder system into the, the D1 schools. 
And so I went there for one year. We had a great year. We advanced to the all-time great potato bowl up in uh, Bakersfield. Nice. nice. The potato bowl. The potato bowl. This straight. That, let me just – so yeah. when you left North Carolina, you said, I'm going to go play at USC, but you didn't go from Greensboro to USC. You actually went to a junior college. You had to work additionally after high school to get to USC. And it wasn't a sure thing at that point in time. You were really, you stepped out on the, is that true? Would you say that you stepped out on a little bit of faith on that one to chase your dream a little bit? It's not a little bit true. It's fully true. (laughs) 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 Yeah, it's fully true. And I think that's my dad being a reasonable man. This defied reason. This was about faith. It was about taking a shot. It was about a feeling that I had in my heart, Dallas, that Mm. I didn't know what the outcome was going to be. I just know that I was driven by this notion that this is where I was supposed to be. I didn't know all the details. And I just, like I say, I told my mother and she said, Vincent, you know, just know that God is with you. And she gave me that last $50, man. I had a one-way ticket that cost me 99 bucks. And I headed to the West Coast, man. Listen, me going to Los Angeles was like going to Beirut or someplace foreign, man. I, it was like the biggest <laughs> move that I had ever made because, again, I'd never been out of the state before. And so in getting to Los Angeles, I enrolled in this junior college, L.A. City. And let, let me backphrase just a little bit. I had written a letter to John McKay. John McKay was the coach at USC at that time. And I'd said to him that I wanted to come to his school. I'd send him some film. And, you know, it was one of those things like, you're a good athlete, but we're not ready for you right now. You know, something to that effect. Ready in terms of offering me a scholarship. Sure. And and so I said, okay, I'm just going to go get near him so at least they can see my, my, my gifts and talents. And so I enrolled in L.A. City College and was intending to go there for a couple of years. We had a great year. Ended up going, like I said, to the Potato Bowl in, in Bakersville. I was the MVP of that game. And there was a scout. There were many scouts at the game up in Bakersville. And after the game was over, there was a scout that came up to me. His name was Willie Brown. And Willie Brown came up and said, Vince, I'm from USC. I'd love for you to come to our university. Good <laughs> gracious. He came so, up right after the game's over, right, after the potato bowl? Right after the potato bowl, Dallas. Good gracious. And, and so he couldn't get the words out fast enough before I said, man, <laughs> where's the letter of intent? I will sign right now. And I tell you, Dallas, it was really, it was heartwarming, man, because that was one of the first steps toward where I wanted to be. The next day I called my dad up and I said, dad guess what, man? He said, what? I said, they offered me a scholarship to go to USC. And you know what he said, Dallas? What? what? He said, boy, I knew you could do it all the time. (laughs) (laughs) I have never lacked confidence. It was like, yeah, I bet you did. I appreciate you, dad. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But you know that incident really he never ever doubted me again so i got to usc and that was major man i mean because 
going to USC, that just the fame school, all the great running backs, the Heisman Trophy, the Rose Bowls, just the great school and the teams that they had over the year years, it was like a it was a big thing for me to get there. And I was so excited about it. Pat Hayden, he was the starting quarterback. He was a senior when I when I was a sophomore and uh, just really admired him. I'd learned a lot from him, just watching him play and how he did things. So it was great being a part of that team and that fraternity, but it was not all rosy. And what I mean by that is in the history of USC, prior to me being there, there had only been two African-American quarterbacks that had played at that school. Yeah, Willie Wood, uh, Jimmy Jones. In fact, Jimmy Jones, when I was in North Carolina, because you have to understand, Dallas, that during that time, I did not see any African-American quarterbacks playing football at any major college. Mm. Jimmy Ray, who was at Michigan State, but I didn't, we didn't get his games. They weren't televised and whatnot. And there may have been some others, but I didn't see them. And so Jimmy Jones, I saw him playing at USC. And I I told my dad, I said, man, man, I want to go there. I want to, that's, I'd never seen an African-American quarterback. So it was an inspiration in seeing him and do, he went to the Rose Bowl. And in fact, when I got there, they asked me what number that I wanted. And I said, I want number eight, like Jimmy Jones. Uh, That's cool. Yeah. And after Pat Hayden had graduated, you know, I was the next guy in line and SC was, they were used to winning national championships and Rose Bowls and things of that nature, as I said. And when I got the first shot to, to be quarterback, we were eight and four. And that by SC standards was considered a losing season. Somebody came up with a bumper sticker after that season saying, save USC football, shoot Vince Evans. You know, <laughs> good gracious day. So ruthless yeah. fan base. That they, were, they were accustomed to winning and, and that sort of thing. And would always get a lot of hate mail and things of that nature from some fans that didn't think it was a good idea that I would be the quarterback there. And I remember my senior year, we were about to play UCLA. And I got in this piece of mail that was different. I mean, I'd gotten a lot of hate mail and things of that nature over the time there. But this one was different insofar as it was cryptid in its, in its lettering. And uh, mm. it said the N-word, if you go out there today, we're going to blow your brains out. We're getting ready to play UCLA. Oh, so right. I, I thought this was a serious uh, piece of mail. And so I took it to Coach Robinson. And Coach Robinson read it. And he thought as well that this was pretty serious. So I'm told that they, he called the LAPD and put them on notice that this kind of thing was out there. And they said they were going to do it at the UCLA game. They were going to shoot me, you know, if I played quarterback against UCLA. Yeah, great. And um, then Coach Robinson said, what do you want to do? And I said, Coach, listen, man, I grew up during this kind of time and back in North Carolina, and, you know, I'm not going to let this deter me from, you know, going out here and participating with my teammates. And so we go out and play and uh, end up beating UCLA and, uh, and then going on to the Rose Bowl and being the MVP in the Rose Bowl. And Coach Robinson wow. was just, I'm so thankful that he was in my life at that particular time during my journey because mm-hmm. he was just an encourager. He was a father type image 
bearer. He was just a wonderful person, man. It was fair and always did the right thing. And I just, I have, he's one of my heroes in my life, man. That's awesome. So you went from eight and four to the last season. You won the Rose Bowl. So what was your record that year? Oh, we were 11 and one. We lost our first game against Missouri and they wanted to run Coach Robinson and me out of town. <laughs> but we ran the table after after that. And uh, it was just a combination, man, of a wonderful season and to cap it off playing Michigan in the Rose Bowl. And and I remember, as I we talked about earlier, I remember walking off of the field with Coach Robinson after that game was over and him putting his arms around me. <laughs> He's saying... What do you think they think of us now, buddy? You know, there you go. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah, that so makes it all worth all the all the mail and the different comments and the commentators and all the naysayers. That uh, that definitely makes it uh, makes it sweeter when you can walk off the field and have a season like that where it's uh, you've definitely proven everybody everybody wrong. That's yes, a good sir. Feeling. Yeah, That's it good. is. So you get through. You you graduate. You've made your dream of playing for USC. You, this is what you had been inspired to do. Right. What happened? What happened after that? Well, I entered into the uh, the NFL draft. I was drafted in the sixth round by the Chicago Bears. It was wonderful to be chosen as an NFL player. You think about it, it's what, 350 million people in the United States of America. And I had one of those, I think there's approximately 34, maybe 4,000 jobs that are in all of sports, right? And to have one of those jobs for 17, 18 years was, was just a blessing, man. And to get drafted by the Chicago Bears, to meet the, the pioneer of football and George Hallis, who was the owner of the Chicago Bears, and having a great relationship with him, it was special to play for them. Walter Payton Sweetness was the guy that I had the pleasure of handing the ball to. And, and man, even though I was on the field, I enjoyed watching that dude run, man. He was just a wow. prolific runner. They called him sweetness for a reason, okay? Uh, <laughs> I mean, he could do some pretty fabulous things out there on that football field. And, but more than that, he was just a heck of a person. And, and it was one of my joys and dreams to be able to, to play for the Bears and be around such wonderful human beings as players. What was one of the hardest things about being in the NFL? Because I know it's a ton of work and commitment takes a lot. What for you? What was one of the? What did you have any struggles or what was the hardest thing for you being in the NFL? Well, I think uh, my preparation coming from college was really good because I had good coaches in college, and it was very much preparatory for me going into the next level. In fact, I thought I was ahead of the curve because of all that I'd learned. In my senior year, I had a great quarterback coach in Paul Hackett, and he taught me really everything or a lot of what I learned about reading defenses as a quarterback in the NFL. And, but I think just anything that you want to be really good at, you got to work at it. You got to study film. You got to repetition, doing things over and over again until when you step out on that field, it's like clockwork. And, and that was something that was sort of innate within me because, again, like I said earlier, my parents were my role models, so they had already set the gauge for me in terms of work ethic. That was not something that I was afraid of because it was a part right. of my life. And you recognize to be on that level, 
because they were putting the, the best guys on the field. And so you had to make sure that your skill set was being tuned in every single time that, that you stepped out on the field, whether it was practice or whether it was game. And I used to always, you know, after practice was over, I would pull guys and they were tired because we had just practiced, but I would get them after practice and tell you, man, let's work on this go router. Let's work on a comeback. Let's work on this or work on that. And, and so it just made me feel more comfortable, you know, once uh, the game started. That's wonderful. I think that's, that's very inspiring. And it's, and I like that, that you spoke so much about preparation and repetition and just how it almost sounds like when you had done it so much yep. that it just slowed down. So you could slowed just, down. it was just like the speed of it slowed down because it was like second nature. Absolutely. Out there and running around. That's awesome. Yeah. So then you transitioned, you were at the bears and had a great time there coming out of college. And then you transitioned to the Raiders. How was that? How did that go down? Yeah, that happened because after my, Let's see, I was seven years with the Bears and I was I was up for renegotiation with my contract and I wanted to stay with the Bears. They, you know, they were a great organization. I had been there for seven years, had become familiar with management and the players, and it was I was treated well there. And so there was another league called the United States Football League, the USFL. And they were just beginning and trying to make their mark as a competitor with the NFL, and although they would play during the springtime. And so they offered me, and so I was hoping that the Bears would at least come close to matching that. They didn't. And so I think probably looking back in retrospect, it was my ego that said, okay, I'm going to take this, this contract with the USFL and show the Bears that they made a mistake. Mm -hmm. I was the one that made a mistake and because the league ended up collapsing after a couple of years. I was actually out of ball for two years. And then there was an NFL strike that took place. And, and they had these strike games where they would have replacement players that would come in and play during that strike period. And once the strike was over, there was no guarantee that they were going to keep those players. And so wow. I was playing with the Raiders during that strike league. And, and so after the league was over, the strike games were over there were two players that were kept and I was one of those players so that's how I got to be with the Raiders and ended up staying there for what another eight years and it was just great man but again it was the same sort of you know thing that we just talked about in terms of the work ethic I was not gonna let anybody outwork me I wasn't a starter so I had to do extra just to make sure that when I was called upon to come in the games that I would be ready to perform well and that the team wouldn't miss a beat. And so that was really, as I look back on my time there with the Raiders, there would be many games where I would come off the bench, man, and we'd win the game in the closing minutes or throwing a winning touchdown to Tim Brown against Washington or playing against Indianapolis, making some big plays and it was just exciting. And I don't know that I would have been able to, in fact, I know that I wouldn't have been able to do that had I not been prepared. And it's tough when you're coming off the bench because you don't get the reps when they doing the regular practice because they got to make sure that the number one guy gets most of the snaps. And then they give you whatever they have time for, which right. is not very much. Yeah. So, right. 
Yeah, my, my stay there with the Raiders was really awesome, and so I'm really, really grateful for that. Was that transition period after that league collapsed and there was no – you weren't in the NFL, you were out for two years. Was that a difficult period for you just because you've come through this set of highs? You, when I look at your career, it was like you – you make it to California, check that box. Then you make it to USC, you check that box. Then you make it into the pros, you're drafted. And you go to the Bears, which you enjoy that organization. You check that box. Then you move you know, over to this new league that collapses and you're out for two years. Was that tough? Yes, it was very tough. You think about as a young kid, you dream of, of being in the National Football League or playing you know, in a major for major college and there are very few people to get a chance to realize those dreams. And so when you have the opportunity to experience those dreams and, and to live out those dreams and all of the highs that go along with that, it was very devastating because I didn't know exactly, I felt like my career wasn't over. And so it was like this pause that it caused me to just reflect and to realign or to reset and to figure out, okay, what do we need to do now in order, if it is over, then life does go on. You got to prepare for that as well. But I didn't feel like it was over. But yes, there, there was a period there where it was sort of a lull and trying to figure out what the next step was going to be. When you look back at your professional career, because we have a lot of leaders and leader coaches and people that are development in developing in their career, you know, yes. in their, whether that's in business or other facets of their life. When you look back on some of the great coaches, because you've referred to them as good, great men, great mentors that were very influential in your life, what are some of the key attributes or things that a great coach that you experienced either gave to you or did for you or taught you that was formative? Yeah. When you ask that question, immediately there are certain characteristics of these coaches that have influenced my life, that it's almost like a common thread from my high school coach to Claude Manzi was my high school coach. Uh, Neil Armstrong was the coach that coached me with the Bears. John Robinson at, at USC and, and, and Coach McKay. The common thread that all of these coaches had is that they knew how to just talk to people. They were just mm -hmm. regular guys that were they were leaders, right? But they didn't, they weren't so big that they couldn't reach down to where you were and make you feel special, make you feel like you were heard, make you feel like that they understood what you were going through. Yes. That sound means it's time to take a break and hear a word from our sponsor. If you lead an organization or a team, one of the biggest challenges you face is developing your people. Think Move Thrive is here to help you on your journey. We've developed a coaching system that integrates into your team or organization to consistently develop your employees, build trust, gain valuable feedback, and increase accountability. Leadership retreats and summits are great. We even build those custom for our clients, but they're only part of the solution because they lack consistency. Our one-on-one -on -one coaching app is the missing piece in your employee development program. We help new leaders get to know their teams. We help technical managers be more relational. And we help ensure that your relational rock stars stay organized. We developed the system for a client, and it was so successful. We created the app 
to help more organizations develop their people, build trust, engagement, and you guessed it, performance. For more information, go to thinkmovethrive.com to learn more about the one-on-one coaching system and start developing your team today. Back to the show. And, and all of those coaches had that same sort of persona, that mentality, that personality, that, that uniqueness of not over-emotional, uh, but yet stern. They knew how to get their point across, but were very engaging with everyone. How many times can someone lead the masses of people? There are all kinds of personalities. There's all kinds of traits. There's all kinds of dispositions that people have. But these guys were able to make you feel like they understood exactly what you were going Wow. Yeah. And and that's, to me, that's a great leader. And you're willing as a player to recognize that what they're trying to tell you is for your benefit. It's not to punish you in any way. It's not to do anything other than to make you the best player and the best person that you can be to be productive. Because again, your, your gift and your talent that will make room for you in whatever your vocational skill may be. But, okay, what do you do when you get there? And how do you respond? Because most of our talent is one thing, but what is your mentality to utilize Mm -hmm. that talent to the fullest? Mm -hmm. Some of the greatest players, I think about Michael Jordan. I don't know him other than he's from the University of North Carolina. I got a root on Tar Heels. But (laughs) he was coached by Dean Smith. Dean Smith was the same persona as these coaches that I mentioned to you about in in my career. And I think that it set a comfort level with Mike, even on that collegiate level, that he was willing to at any time take the last shot because he knew if he hit it or missed it, you know what? So be it. I was willing to take it, it. you know? Yes. And those kind of coaches, they're rare. But yet when they're yeah. there, they are personified just in their humility and uh, just great leadership skills with people. I think that's so important and it's so overlooked because sometimes people, when they're in a leadership position, they feel like they either have to have all the answers or they have to, since they, they feel this weight of responsibility, they've got to push people to achieve yeah. this result that for them, but I think that they overlook so many times the simplicity of what you just said. It's the, some of the greatest leaders that you've been in, impacted by throughout your life were just able to talk to people as a person, just yeah. me to you. And they had this ability to build trust with you in the sense that they knew they could relate to you and where you were. And you knew based on, on that time you spent with them, that they really were, whatever they told you, they were doing it for your benefit. Yes, everybody wants to win the games, but they're coming to you and they're saying, look, if we're asking you to do this, is to get you, make you better, faster, stronger. It's your benefit. Yes, you know? sir. So I think that's, it sounds so simple. It sounds so simple. And yet there's so many leaders that I think that overlook the power that that brings to a team, to an organization. And so I appreciate you sharing that because that's very wise. And I think if I could just add a little bit more, when I think about that, I think about my mother. I think about she was a leader in so far as, think about it, raising a family, right? There's different personalities. 
she would talk to us, my brothers, like in a very calm voice until we were getting ready to get a spanking. Then we would check. <laughs> <laughs> it gets but, real then. <laughs> <laughs> it gets real. <laughs> and believe me, I, I pushed that level. Um, yeah, but she was able, Dallas, to just talk to us in ways that was just reassuring. It was reassuring. Mm. And uh, she always incentivized us to be the best that we could be. And sometimes, like you said, it was real where she had to make sure that we understood the guidelines. And, but yet when it, she just always was able to be calm. And that was, that, that was effective for me. Mm, That's great. So you had some time at the Raiders though, and you were talking to me about it before the show that she had some personal kind of journey that you were going on during that yeah. time as well. Tell us about that journey that you experienced while you were at the Raiders and the impact it had on the, your life and yeah. how that transformed. I need to take it back just a little bit, Dallas, to the, just the real indoctrination into the National Football League. We talked about it a little bit before. We talk about there are approximately 3,500 to 4,000 jobs that are in professional sports, okay, football, basketball, baseball, soccer, whatever. Okay, I had one of those jobs, man, for 17 years. But on the front side of that, it was amazing to be there. I'm a star quarterback. I'm playing for a recognizable, iconic team in the Chicago Bears. And there are people that know my name. They're like, hey, man, we'd like for you to sign this endorsement. We would like for you to come to this event. These are things that I wasn't really accustomed to growing up in Greensboro, North Carolina, mm. working on a farm. And I was just Vince, man. Yeah. And, and so these exposures, they were addicting insofar as I was starting to think more highly of myself than I should have been, meaning that my humility was on the back burner. And I was, my head was getting a little blown up. There were women that were available and things that were going on in my life that kind of skewed like my thinking for a while. And so there was a, an event we were playing the, we were playing the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, man, down in Tampa. And I had, for those of you listeners or viewers that didn't really see me play, I was a sort of a mobile quarterback. And so I was trying to evade this would-be tackler and he ended up scratching me on the left arm and uh and so after the game was over didn't think anything of it told the doc about it he put some antiseptic on it put a band-aid on it we flew back to chicago right and so i had to get up earlier in the morning to go to the bathroom and as i was trying to get out of the bed dallas move man my my lower extremities were paralyzed and so i literally oh gosh i literally had to crawl man to go to the bathroom and I said, oh my God, it was, in, I was in such excruciating pain. So I called some friends of mine up and they came and got me, took me to the hospital and they diagnosed me as having a staph infection. Characteristic of a staph yeah. infection, man, Gracious. is it attacks the weakest tissues in the body. So it conceivably could have gone to my heart or brain or anything and it would have been instant death. But anyway, so I'm in the hospital for 30 days. I've never been oh in the, I've never been in the hospital for over three hours. 
And time was a time of reflecting on my life. I grew up in a Christian home and I'd sort of put those values on the back burner because I was this star now and that sort of thing. And, uh, and when I got out of the hospital, I, I had to learn how to walk again. My legs had atrophy. My mother came up from North Carolina because they thought I was going to die. <laughs> and unbelievable. Uh, oh, it was unbelievable, man. And so, and this happened I, so fast. Like you're saying that literally you're in Tampa, you get scratched on the arm, you go home and I, it's, is it, the, is it just a few days that this all this goes a, down? You, no, it was when we got back from that trip from Tampa and I got back to my apartment in Chicago. Oh my gosh. It was that night, brother. Oh my and, gosh. Yeah. And so the next 31 days, I was in the hospital, right? Legs mm. atrophy, temperature over 103, and they didn't know how to get it down. They were putting cold packs on my body. I thought I was going to freeze to death. And, uh, and they called my mother up. And so... That's when I knew it was serious. I mean, I knew it was serious before, but so she comes up and I'm learning how to walk again and this and that. And thankfully the doctors through antibiotics and all of that were able to eradicate the staph infection. And, but I didn't know what, if I would ever play football again. Oh. And some months later, I was at home watching this program on television and this preacher and I'm in Chicago, and it's a gloomy day, and this preacher is talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and how he had died for my sin. I'd heard that growing up as a kid because we went to church and everything, but it didn't really have an impact on me at that time because I, I just thought I was a good person and it was all good. And, but this day, it was transformational. When this mm. preacher said that Jesus Christ had died for my sins, man, the sun came out. I'll never, ever forget this as long as the sun came out. It beamed in my eyes. Mm. And all I said, Dallas, was, God, if you're real, I want you to do something in me. That's all I said. And wow. it was like my life changed that day because the hedonistic lifestyle that I was leaving before and all that I was doing, I had a desire, man, to want to know God and to... Mm learn about him and through Bible study and through things of that nature. And so now fast forward to the Raiders. When I got to the Raiders, now I'm living this lifestyle from 79 to the time with the Raiders in the 80s and 90s. And uh, I'm a different man. And, uh, wow. you know, even when I was with the Bears, when I threw a touchdown from that time that I was with the Bears, I threw a touchdown, I would get down on my knee and just thank God for his presence. And uh, after we're in training camp, we're in training camp. This guy, Steve Wisniewski, who was our starting left guard. Okay. Steve is about, man, Steve is six, six, three sixty, right? He was a stud. He was a straight stud, man. So listen, Dallas, after training camp, Steve, after training camp practice, he says, Vince, would you baptize me? And I'm like, and that's what I said. I said, oh, what? <laughs> and I said, baptize you. Now, Steve was a strong believer in his own right. But I oh, think wow. the reason he asked me that was, it's not so much what you say, but it's how you live and what you do. And he just saw that I was one of the first guys on the field. I was one of the last guys off the field. And 
But he said, when he, and I said, yeah, I'd be happy to do that, Steve. And, and so it's during training camp. So I didn't know how many guys, we didn't know how many guys would show up because guys are tired and they, they want to get their rest and everything. And so there was a, it was in Oxnard, California. Hmm. And they had a whirlpool there at the facility at where we were staying. And so we invited about 25 guys. And again, we didn't know how many guys were going to show up. And, and so it was that. It was about 25 guys that showed up. And we sang some songs. And then there was this guy named Dan Turk. He's since gone on to heaven. But he was our starting center. And he was on Steve's left side. I was on his right. And we baptized Steve. And then there were 17 other guys that wanted to make a profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And they wanted to be baptized that day, wow. man. And so that was on the Raiders, baby. On the Raiders. This is the Raiders football team. <laughs> Raider Mason, man. <laughs> you guys are having church after practice. I so love it. Was, it was, it was great. great. That's great. It was great. And so I just thank God for that opportunity, man. And uh, and yeah. And so just, uh, you know, I was just so thankful to be able to be there with that organization to for Mr. Davis, Mr. Al Davis to see enough in me to allow me to be a part of his organization. In fact, they were one of the organizations that as a kid, when Daryl LaMonica used to hit Warren Wells in the, in the corner of the end zone, those were things that were my inspiration growing up. And so to be able to have had that opportunity to play for them and Mr. Davis, it was great, man. That's awesome. Good for you, man. That's such a cool story. And I like how it you had these kind of dreams and goals and you had the work ethic that goes behind it and what was necessary to get there. And then you got it yeah. and it almost seems like it was almost overwhelming and it started to change you a little bit, but then you had this reawakening essentially. And I think that 31 days of sitting in a hospital, like you said earlier, that the career had taken a little bit of humility from you. I had actually, I dislocated my hip in my 20s and during an athletic event and obviously not pro sports, but I dislocated that. And I remember the recovery of that was weeks. You can't bend over. You can't pull your own pants. Wow. And so you just, you get a dose of humility and it's, it's painful, but it's good. Yes. It's like good medicine. It's good. So I can relate to that in that yeah. way. And so you get out of, you get out of professional sports. I'm assuming at the end of the time with Raiders, was that clear at that time that you were going to leave professional football and go into a, another career? Yeah, it was pretty clear, Dallas, because Mr. Davis wanted me to stay another year. Now, again, I'd played 17 years up until this time, and so it was a blessing. I'm 40 years old, and, and to be asked to maybe come back and compete again, but I felt like it was time. And so I had my moment of uh, mourning, if you will, or grieving and that sort of thing, because it's a game that we all love and have played since we were kids and that sort of thing. But it was time to move on. And I really wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I was a speech communications major in school. And so I didn't particularly want to be on television or anything like that, like you see so many guys do. And so I tried different things here and there just to try to find my niche. And I remember in 1998, it was talk about bringing NFL football back to Los Angeles. And the guy that was helping to sort of shepherd that cause was a guy named Ed Roski, and he was a real estate developer and also a trustee over at the college that I went to, USC. And I was able to sort of be a part of that whole little campaign. But more oh, so wow. than that, it was connecting the dots to, to, to Mr. Roski. And because uh, the deal was, is he said, hey, if you can help me with the football side, 
Maybe I can teach you something about the real estate business because I wanted to learn about the real estate business. And it wasn't selling houses. This was commercial development and buying raw land and bringing entitlements to the property and things of that nature. So it was a learning curve that I had to go through to, uh, to be in that business. So I worked for him for five years and, and it was some great years. He's a, yeah, he was a great man and offered me the opportunity to be educated there. And so I just stepped out on my own and started my own company. And, and so there was a found a really wonderful piece of property here in Southern California where the city owned the property and we were able to go in there and buy that property, get it entitled, bring all the utilities and infrastructure there and build a, a very successful real estate development with major anchors there and just brought sales tax and property tax. But more importantly, it brought jobs to that community and, and was able to, to hold that. We ended up ended up selling it or doing a 1031 exchange into another type of property because commercial real estate or commercial retail was sort of changing. The, the big box brick and mortar stores, people weren't going to those as much as they were picking up the phone and seeing it online and having it delivered to their house. And so we saw that market was changing a little bit. And so we got out of that and more into the industrial warehouse business where we lease space to manufacturing, distribution, and warehousing companies that need the utilization of that kind of space. And so that, that's been very good for us. That's wonderful. Good for you, man, making the pivot. That's a very difficult thing. I was talking to on another episode with an Olympic coach, and he had mm -hmm. transitioned from being an Olympic athlete to an, to an Olympic coach. And just the period of time when he left the Olympics, it was kind of like he felt like he was on this high, and he goes, Nobody, essentially nobody tells you how to get down off the mountain. You know, you, you make it to the peak and then you, how do you yeah. get here? And so he was, he struggled in that transition period because he didn't have a lot of guidance and mentor and coaching like you, you were able to find and develop. So I think well done on that because I think uh, for whether you're coming out of pro sports or whether you're coming out of the military, taking those skills that you learned in those areas and then reapplying, then relearning something completely different. That's, that's a very what? difficult skill set. So well done. And let me talk about that a little bit, because I know, I feel like sometimes whether you're a, an athlete or, you know, somebody that's graduated from college or, you know, they're, they're, they're trying to find the next niche in their, their pathway or their journey, or maybe even a person that has been in a particular vocation for a number of years and they're just feeling this sense that it's time for them to move on to a different place. I think sometimes we overstep when things are quiet. Uh, and what I mean by things are quiet is that it's a waiting period. It's a time of just reflection. It's a time of just sort of processing. What is the next step? We always, not always, but there's a time I think where we think that I got to go from this to this right away and not sort of think about what am I supposed to be doing right now? And I'm saying that because I'm learning how to wait and be mm. patient. It's, and it's not waiting, sitting around doing nothing, but it's waiting to allow the next journey or the next mm. vision or the next opportunity for you to get involved in. And I'm saying that because after the real estate thing, there was a, an opportunity for me to get into the manufacturing business. And what I manufacture is, and this is just unbelievable. It's a, it's a football helmet. If you can envision, who's your favorite team, Dallas? 
Ooh, I I, um, I actually have several. I'm a I'm a. I'm well, a just Clemson, give me one. Clemson Tiger football is college, so I'm all a right. Clemson Tiger let's, man. All right, let's stop with Clemson. Okay, so if you can imagine Dallas, a Clemson football helmet, right? You lift the up on this on this um, football helmet, and inside of that is a Keurig single serve coffee maker. <laughs> Okay. Now, I love it. That's awesome. Okay. I have the patents on the utility and all the intellectual properties on that development, right? Where we're licensed with Clemson and all the D1 schools under the leader, under the purview of the Collegiate Licensing Corporation. And that's what we do. We sell helmet coffee makers. Now, (laughs) what's. I'm so happy that you laughed about that because that lets me know that you're probably going to be one of those buyers once they yes, hit the Clemson uh, market. A hundred percent. That's hundred percent. That's so, that's so fun. I mean, that's just a really creative idea, but I mean, I would love to go get coffee out of my favorite Clemson helmet every day. That's uh, that's awesome. Well, and that that's what we're looking at it as uh, Dallas. It's a cheap product. You know, mm-hmm. it's a novelty product insofar as it's in your man cave there yeah. where you know, you're there, so you got some of your buddies come into their office, they look at it and they say, oh, Dallas, man, what a cool helmet. And then you go and offer them a cup of coffee and they're like, whoa. <laughs> and, awesome. and we're selling the product now. We launched this year with, with Ohio State and uh, selling at the Barnes and Noble on, on Ohio State's campus there. And uh, so, yeah, it's just one of those things. But oh, if we don't wait to get these opportunities for the dots to connect for us. Sometimes we can get ahead of the process. And and I think when we just wait and calm down and listen and be available for other people and serving other people, there's amazing the results that can come for your next next journey walk. I think that's so important. Uh, That's just incredible wisdom. You've just laid out a lot of good stuff today. And I think that the the temptation that people have, especially in our society and the social media and all yes. this environment, it's like you're seeing all these things coming at you and all this success. You're, yes. you're seeing everyone's best day all the time. Right. You know what I mean? You log right. on social media, you see everybody's best day, <laughs> best life all at once, all the time. And then you look like it. You look in the mirror and you go, I'm a, I'm a total loser if I can't be doing this. You know, oh, and so right. I think there's a pressure that comes with that. If you got, if you don't go from one success directly to the next success, then you're some type of a failure and life is just more of a zigzag pattern. And I think to what you're saying there is we all have these experiences where we're building momentum, we're growing and we kind of hit that peak. And then it's like, okay, now what's the next thing? And, and I love the fact that you say, don't rush because what you're really seeking in that moment is clarity. You're trying to figure out like, what's the next thing? And you can't make this big decision without, you know, that's a really good decision without having clarity, but clarity is not something you just go, bing, I have it. I mean, it takes time. It takes time to develop. You're, you're looking at opportunities. You're mulling things over. You're thinking, what, where does my skill align? Where does my passion sit? You know, where, where, where am I in this stage of my life? How much risk can I take on right now? All these things, what opportunities are in front of me? What opportunities will be in front of me, you know? And so it just, you can't, if you just make a quick decision, there's so much that you might miss out on. Because you can't, you're just trying to jump to that next ring of success when really what you're missing is something that may go much higher if you just take a minute. 
take a minute, yeah. you know? So yeah. I think that's great encouragement for entrepreneurs, especially for business owners, for business leaders, yeah. people yeah. that's graduating from college, anybody in transition. I think yeah. I take, I think you take Vince's advice and just hold off for a second. Just think about yeah. it. Take, don't be afraid to take a minute, you know, and, don't take, and not take a minute. Yeah. Don't get ahead yeah. of the process. I love how you said that. Don't get ahead mm. of the process. Let the yeah. process play out. You know, I let think it play out. Advice. Let it that's play right. out. Yeah, I've, I've been talking to my daughter about this very thing. And it's interesting that you would bring up the, the social media platform because she is of that ilk and that, that age range where it is. It's an impressionable thing that, that in some respects, I think it just captivates the audience of so many people. And as you said, you know, there, there's so much enticing things out there, having your best life now that is just not the real life. And so I'm, right. we've been having some good conversations because she has sort of hit a brick wall in her life. And I'm saying, this is the opportunity right now, baby, for mm -hmm. you to just pause, to look mm -hmm. within and just keep doing what you're doing to develop your best self. Mm -hmm. And it'll be clear. And she is such a, she's a compassionate person for serving other people. I said, you know what, you're going to, where are you at now and where are you going to be maybe a year from now, two years from now? Mm. There's going to be two different places That's just wonderful. because you're going through what you're going through now only to, to learn where you're going to end up being, you know? That's exactly so. right. Sometimes it's very hard to see that right in that between <laughs> stage. You're like, it's never going to get here. I'm never going to get out of this. But that's the... That's the process, right? That is the process, the process is going through that and, uh, yeah. and coming out the other side with that endurance and perseverance. So that's right. I think that's wise, wise advice for your daughters and our listeners too. All right. Well, we have, um, we have just had the best time today. I've really enjoyed our conversation and hearing oh, this likewise, story. This Dallas. Is fantastic. I have a question for you. We always ask our listeners at the end of the show, if they have anybody that they would like to hear be a guest on the last 10%. And so I didn't know if you had someone in mind. It can be someone that you know. It can be yeah. somebody that you just always wanted to hear on a show. Uh, but is there anybody that you would like to hear be a guest on The Last 10%? Well, right now I've got, I've got emotion because I'm thinking about my daughter. Mm. And I just know that her story is going to be a, a great story, man. Mm because of the process that she's in right now. And she's very articulate, she's very talented. Mm -hmm. And I'd like to hear her story. That's and wonderful. because I think that she would be able to inspire other people, you know, mm. so. That's wonderful. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that uh, today, Vince. And I'll, yes, sir. I, uh, I know your daughter is a wonderful person and we would like to hear her story too. So that's, uh, <laughs> that's awesome. Thank you for right being on. on the show today. And thank you for sharing your story. I think you've been a very, uh, good encouragement to our, our listeners, a great encouragement to our listeners. I would yeah. like to say, give you an opportunity. If you was, if you would share advice, if you had anything like a, a parting in, uh, advice or wisdom for anybody that's a, an entrepreneur, a leader, a business leader, or a, a coach, what would, what encouragement or advice would you, would you offer that, that community? What I would say to that community is that there was a young lady that had a cosmetic product that she was trying to get into the marketplace for many years. She believed in the product 100%. But every time that she tried to get that product in, into a major distribution channel, uh, she was just turned down. She was turned down. Mm. And she was turned down for 12 years. Oh, wow. She was turned down for 12 years. But yet, she did not 
lose hope. She did not, she was never discouraged about her product. And so after, or in the 13th year, there was a company, a major company that offered to buy her product for $1.2 billion. Okay. Oh my goodness gracious. Yes. And the point of this story is that we all feel like sometimes, is this worth it? Is it mm. worth me continuing another year? I've been going at this for this many years and seemingly not getting the results that I, you know, had hoped for. But I'm encouraged by her because she didn't give up. She mm. didn't give up in the 10th year. She didn't give up in the 11th year. She didn't, you know, and then the fruits of her labor were rewarded in ways that she probably never dreamed of. And right. so, you know, I would just encourage these entrepreneurs, coaches, whoever it might be, to never give up, stay in the moment, and, and just trust the process, man. Trust the process. I think that is wonderful words of wisdom and advice. I know our listeners appreciate it. And just it's been a pleasure having you on the show today, Vince. Thanks again for being on The Last 10%. My pleasure, Dallas. Thanks for joining us today on The Last 10%. We hope you found today's content engaging and encouraging. Remember to subscribe to the podcast to hear the latest episodes and help us out by rating and reviewing us so others will join our community. We release new episodes every other Tuesday. This podcast can be found globally in any podcasting app, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Amazon. Subscribe today. Plus, visit our website, join our email list, and discover resources and info for your business and team at thinkmovethrive.com. Thanks again for listening to The Last 10%.